Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. We're doing a series from the edge of eternity. And today we look at a very tender topic, a very difficult topic. In fact, it's one that I have never devoted an entire message to as I will today. It is an issue that recently Stephen Curtis Chapman faced Some of you heard about that. His five-year-old girl, Maria, was struck and killed in their own driveway. It was a tragedy. It hit the Christian community. It was all over the news, but it hurt more than anything the heart of those dear parents who lost their five-year-old girl. People magazine covered the funeral event, and the magazine said the family raised their arms as they sang songs of worship and sought comfort in their faith. And then Stephen Curtis Chapman told the press, We had talked with Maria about what it means to be with Jesus, but I had no idea how soon it was going to be. But we know that she is in His amazing house. One of the most difficult things in life to face is the death of a child. I watched... My parents bury one of their sons. He was much older, but I saw the hurt, the pain, how it ravaged the emotions. And I've stood at the grave of uh, many a child that with the parents we laid to rest. Very, very difficult. In this last month, I officiated at two funerals for babies. And at one of them, I was at the cemetery earlier than the rest of the funeral party before the hearse got there, before the little casket arrived. And I was just walking around the section of the cemetery devoted solely to little children. And I read the gravestones. It was very, very emotional to read what parents wrote and to read the the child's life. One year old, four months old, two days old. 24, 48 hours, and then gone. It is much different when a child dies than when an older person dies. It's never, it's never fun when anybody dies. It's always a shock and always a tragedy. But when a child dies, it is much different because with, with older people, there is an expectation that they're going to die. But it, when a child dies, it seems so cruel out of order. Something's wrong. This isn't right. One person said and likened it infant death to a period that is placed before the end of a sentence. It's out of place. What happens to babies when they die? Do they automatically go to heaven? Do they go to a place called limbo? Anybody ever get taught that, as I did as a child, that the soul goes to a place of contentment but not perfect joy in the presence of God because of original sin? What happens? And you might be asking, well, why this sermon? Why a whole message on, on this? Because you might be thinking, Skip, this, this doesn't relate to my life. You don't know that yet. You don't know what your life's going to bring. And in the very least... 
Through this message, you will be equipped to help bring comfort to those parents who have lost precious little ones. It's been estimated that 25% of all pregnancies will not complete the 20th week of pregnancy. That's a staggering number. One out of every four pregnancies at least will end in miscarriage. We had two miscarriages in our family, and many of you have faced them as well. Now, that's just miscarriage. Then there's neonatal death, death inside the womb. Then there's perinatal death, death at the time of delivery. And, and these are in staggering numbers, proportions. Of course, the number one cause of death of children between one week and five years of age is called sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. And the numbers are amazing. It's estimated that two million babies will die within their first 24 hours each year worldwide. Now, all of these are eternal souls. Where do they go? What happens to them? It's a question that we really need an answer to. And we need an answer more than just an emotional answer of what we want. We need a biblical answer. And to say, as many in churches do, I don't know, or we can never know, that's not very comforting. I believe we can know. And I believe unequivocally that when a child dies, they go directly into the presence of God. And I want to show you that from Scripture. Now, the text we're going to look at is Matthew 19, three short verses, verse 13 through 15. Then little children were brought to him, that is to Jesus, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Before we jump into unpacking this text, let me just tell you what this text does not refer to. It does not refer to infant baptism. I don't know where people get that from. You really have to stretch the meaning of the text, but but they do. They try to quote this verse as a proof of infant baptism, those who believe in baptismal regeneration. Second, this verse has nothing at all to do with bringing little children into the main church service. Okay, can I just get that out there? You would be surprised over the years, especially before we had that wonderful family room, how many parents would be stopped by ushers when they wanted to bring their little babies in, and the mothers or fathers in anger would say, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Well, first of all, I'm not Jesus. So we'll get that out of the way. Well, I know that. And the whole point of... of Uh, the nursery and Sunday school is to, in that environment, get them to Jesus as soon as we can in that age-appropriate way. Now, these verses have everything to do with who Jesus lets into His kingdom when He says, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, today what I'd like to do is just sort of look at two main things. There are at least four parties involved in this little meeting. There is Jesus Christ. Then there are the disciples. Then there are the parents, presumably, who bring, number four, the children to Jesus. There may have even been a crowd of people watching this, so there might be five independent parties involved. We're going to deal really with two sections. 
That is, the parents and their spiritual concern for their children, and then Jesus and His special care for children. Those two items as outlined in your bulletin. Let's look at verse 13 a little more carefully. And notice it says, Then little children... Now mark that phrase in your mind. We'll get back to it. Little children were brought to Him that He might put His hands on them and pray. Now this was a common practice. To bring children to a rabbi, to have the rabbi lay his hand on the child and to bless the child and to pray for the child's safety and future. It was a common practice. And it goes all the way back to the time of the patriarchs. Back in Genesis 42, do you remember the story when Joseph, who had his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, born and raised in Egypt, he wanted to get those two kids to his father Jacob, their grandfather, and have grandpa lay his hands on the children and bless them. And remember the story? It says Jacob was an old guy and he couldn't see, but he knowingly pulled a switcheroo. That's not how the Scripture says it, but he he crossed his hands. And he placed his right hand on the youngest. And Joseph said, no, 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 he's the youngest. And Jacob said, I know what I'm doing. The younger is going to be more prominent than even the older. And even the Jewish Talmud instructed parents to bring their children to a notable rabbi, a spiritual leader. So it became a custom that on the anniversary of the child's birth, the first birthday, they would bring to the synagogue the little children to be blessed by the rabbis. And here they bring children to Jesus. Notice it says little children. The Greek word paideia, toddlers, or actually all the way from infancy up to a young child. Now, in Luke's same account of this text, It says, and they brought infants to him, brethos. And so all the way from infancy to young childhood, that was the age of those who were being brought to Jesus here. Now we've sort of followed that custom. We have baby dedications. By the way, it's not to take the place of infant baptism. We don't hold some superstitious um, element and say that, well, you've got to get your child dedicated or else... No, we do it as a way to incorporate that new wonderful life of these children being born into our fellowship in a way that we can all stand behind those children and those parents. Well, no wonder parents would want to bring their children to Jesus and place their kids in His hands. They've watched those hands heal people, give sight to blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, Who wouldn't want to get their children into the hands of Jesus? So why did they bring their kids to Jesus? Because every parent loves his children. Every parent wants the safe uh, passage and journey for the children, wants their children to go into the kingdom, wants them to go to heaven. And so they brought them to Jesus. I suggest the same for any parent. Get your kids to Jesus as soon as you can. In those earliest years when you think, oh, they don't even know what I'm talking about. Mention His name. Instruct them. Charles Spurgeon used to put it this way. Before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. And better still, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. As young as you can, because a parent is a partner with God in discipling children. 
So it's a beautiful story. They're bringing their kids to Jesus. But notice, but the disciples rebuked them. How weird is that? You think, wait, wait a minute. These disciples have been now with Jesus for at least two years. They've heard his messages. They've seen him. They obviously don't share his heart for children. It's a very strong word, by the way, rebuked. It means to scold or sharply reprimand. Something like, get out of here. Why would disciples do that? I can think of a couple reasons. Possibility number one, these disciples were influenced by the worldly idea of what children were. The Greco-Roman idea that children were insignificant. That childhood was the most insignificant part of a person's life. They're just children. Did you know that 2,000 years ago... In the pagan cultures, unwanted children were simply abandoned, just cast out, just thrown out, abandoned, out in the open field. And especially if they were a girl, unfortunately, there was a lot of discrimination in gender. Because, you see, a daughter in a poor family would mean a future financial burden, but a boy could contribute to the economy of the family in those days. So the girls were cast out. Here's a little excerpt from a letter a little over 2,000 years ago from 1 B.C. A man writes to his wife. He's out on the battlefield. If, he says, if, good luck to you, you have another child. If it is a male child, let it live. If it is a female, cast it out. And so these babies that were abandoned were collected at night and placed into the city forum. Most of them didn't survive. The ones that survived were made slaves, gladiators, or prostitutes. So it could be that just that kind of thinking about children in the world had influenced these disciples. Now you might say, well, I don't buy that. They were Jewish and they were Jesus' disciples, so they probably didn't think that way. You might be right. In fact, it could be that they were tainted by the very religious view of children. You say, what do you mean by that? The very religious view. Yeah. Did you know that the most religious people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they didn't think very well of children either. And here's why. The Pharisees believed that you earn your salvation. And because a child is incapable of earning their salvation, the kingdom of God does not belong to children. They can't do anything to earn their salvation. Thus, they're insignificant. Now, I won't have you turn to it, but the account that we're reading, these three verses, they're so important, they're found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three synoptics. In Luke's account, listen to this, in Luke's account of the same passage, Jesus said this right after he told a parable. And I want you to see how it fits together. It says, Jesus spoke a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were more righteous than others. And he said, two men went up to the temple to pray. Remember that story? A Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I thank you that I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. He was boasting in his own good work. Jesus continued the parable. 
But the tax collector wouldn't even raise his head up, but he, he pounded his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, literally, the sinner. And what did Jesus say? That man went down to his house justified, and the righteous religious guy did not. Right after that, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You get the connection? In other words, it's not the self-righteous who are justified. It's not the spiritually elite. It's not the moral achievers. It's all those who, like little children, recognize their own helplessness, their own hopelessness apart from Christ, and they completely and totally depend on His grace. There's something to note about these disciples and, and their response. I think that children want to come to Jesus Christ. Once they find out about Jesus, I've even noticed this among children of unbelievers, that children often want to come to Jesus Christ, and it's too often the adults that get in the way. I heard about a, an atheistic lawyer who had a plaque in his office, and the plaque read, get this, God is nowhere This little girl was in his office one day looking up at this plaque. God is nowhere. And she was just sort of killing time waiting for dad. And she took a couple pieces of paper and kept copying that motto, kept copying it. But as she copied it, she made a mistake. And she put a space between, in the last word, the W and the H. So it read, God is now here. Completely changed the meaning and upset her father. That little illustration just just points to how kids on their own, God, I think, put that within their hearts. And parents have to steer that away. Parents, make it easy for your kids to love Jesus, to come to Him. Any kind of overture that they make that's spiritual, seize the moment. Evangelize them. Gospelize them. I remember when... My little Nady, who's now not so little, he's 22 and 6 foot 4, but when he was, just a couple years ago, so small. (laughs) And we were driving. I I remember the day, I remember the road we were on right up here. And he had seen an altar call at church, and he was asking me about it and what it meant to come to Christ and pray to receive Christ. And we're driving down the street, and he just turned to me and said, Daddy, I want to pray to receive Christ. Now, I was on the way to an appointment. I did not say, hold that thought. I went, pulled the car over, stopped it, looked at him, spent the time. And I remember holding his little hands as he prayed to receive Christ. Seize all of those little moments. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Let's segue from, from the parents' concern to Jesus' personal and tender special care. Verse 14, but Jesus said... Let the little children come to me. I bet bet this blew the disciples' mind. They they didn't expect that. It sure delighted the parents, however. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this little section is a very short section. Really only one verse, main verse. But it is so significant and so important, as I said... It's mentioned in three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think it's a major statement that Jesus is making about the value and significance of children. 
about his tender love for children and about their access to God and to his kingdom. One thing you realize, if you, if you read through the whole of Scripture, you can't miss this. God has a tender spot in his heart toward children. A special spot, a special care for children. I think you see that all the way through the Scripture. There's a great text in Ezekiel chapter 16 where God is likening Israel to a little child. This is what he says. I remember when you were born, God says, as a nation. Nobody cut your navel cord. Nobody washed you. Nobody rubbed salt on you, as was the custom. Nobody put you in swaddling cloths. But they cast you out and they abandoned you in a field. And then I found you. And I said to you in your blood, live. And you lived and you grew up. But as you grew up, you turned away from me. You rejected me. In fact, now you've become idolatrous in your practices. And then God says this in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 20 and 21. Listen to this. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, says God. Stop there. You had them, but you bore them to me. God's claiming them. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. You know what they were doing? They were taking their little babies and placing them on an idol's arms called Molech. And they would wait till that molten steel idol became red hot and they would incinerate their babies as an offering to the god Molech. And so God says, you sacrifice them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? Do you hear those words? God is laying claim to those children. And he's not laying claim to the children of believing Jews. These were idolaters. He's not saying that they were his children because the parents were saved. God's saying, they're my children because they exist as children. They were mine. You bore them to me, and they're mine. Special tender care. Now, I believe that verse 14 of Matthew, the verse we're reading, it also reveals a child's special access to God. I think that, that nowhere, at no time, will you see the grace of God exhibited more in a child's life than at the time of death. For Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Or as the NASB says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Ton toyuton. Ton gar toyuton in the Greek. In other words, it belongs to those who are like children and it also includes children themselves. And until that child reaches the condition of, the age of accountability, where they can discern between right and wrong and make choices and are held responsible for those choices... They have that special care and access to God. I want you to see something. I want you to go back one chapter. Chapter 18 of Matthew. Because you see where the thought begins. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. These guys are really theologically inclined. They ask a very heavy question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe they thought Jesus would say, Well, Peter, you are. Or, John, I think it's you. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See, even an adult has to come to a place where they are willing, like a child, to be absolutely and totally dependent upon God's grace, not their own works. You have to become like a little child. Well, children, as referred to in chapter 19, verse 14. Children of that age, little children or infants, they're at an age where they're incapable of exercising saving faith. They're at an age where they are incapable of rebelling against God. And I think there are plenty of scriptures that indicate that if a child dies before that age, condition of accountability, they are in heaven. What that age is, I can't tell you. If you ask me afterwards, I'll say again, I don't know. I think it varies from child to child. But I want to show you some scriptures. And you can just write these down. I'll show them to you. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. There's one verse I want to pull out. God says to the children of Israel, Moreover, your little ones, your children, whom you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it. That is, give the land. I want to just lift out that phrase. They have no knowledge of good and evil. They have no clear, true understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is evil and what is good. No sense of law at all. No conscious rebellion against the law of God. In fact, because they're little kids, they don't even know what the law of God is. They're not even conscious of it, let alone able to rebel against it. So they are therefore not responsible moral agents. There's no culpability because they don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. Twice in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 34, and chapter 19, verse 4, God calls little children by this term, innocence. They are innocents. He says of their parents who are sacrificing their children, you have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. Now, you know what? If God calls somebody innocent, guess what? They're innocent. He didn't toss that term around lightly. They're innocent. Does that mean that children are not sinful? No. Does that mean your children are not fallen? No. And it's manifestly seen as the child grows up, right? I think every parent should be able to say amen to that. Everybody notices that bent toward evil that you don't have to teach a child. It comes naturally. It does mean that a child cannot discern God's law. And they can't be held guilty for premeditated sin because they don't have any premeditated, volitional rebellion. Then there's Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. And before we put it up on the screen, you know the book of Jonah. God took Jonah to Nineveh, right? And he said, preach to this city. And then the city repented. And so God withheld his judgment. And what did Jonah do? He got really bummed out. God, I was counting on you destroying all these people. You know, he hated the Ninevites. So listen to what God says. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? Jonah, you want me to destroy a whole city that has 120,000 children in it? Kids? What a description. It's the same description metaphorically. 
can't tell their right from their left is Deuteronomy chapter 1. They don't know right from wrong, good and evil. Then there was Job. Job lost everything, including his children. Job got so low after losing his kids, losing his health, and losing everything he owned. In chapter 3, here's his despair. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day he was born. He said, May the day perish on which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. Then down in verse 11, Job says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why did the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. That is, if he would have been born a stillborn, perinatal death. I would have been asleep. I would have been at rest. Now, before you say, well, all Job meant is that it'd be better off dead than alive and suffering. He just meant not exist, rest from existence. He didn't mean that. Job must have meant that to be at rest as a baby was to be in the presence of God. And here's why. Because it was the same Job who says a few chapters later, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that I will resurrect, and in my flesh I will see God, right? That's what he believed. So here he is stating that a child, when he dies, goes to be at rest with the Lord. Then there's 1 Kings chapter 14. And I'm just sort of summing up a few, but I want you to, want you to keep these. Write these down. Look them up. Use them. 1 Kings chapter 14. God pronounces judgment on the whole household of King Jeroboam because he was so wicked. And God basically says, I'm going to make a clean sweep and every male of your entire household is going to be destroyed. You can't even bury them. They're going to lie out on the streets and the birds and the dogs are going to get them. They won't even have a proper burial. He says in verse 10 of 1 Kings 14, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel. I will take away the remnant from the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. That is, except for one little child. God says in chapter 12, uh, uh, verses 12 and 13, 1 Kings 14, When your feet enter the city, the child, it's a little child, little toddler or infant, shall die. And all Israel will mourn for him and bury him. Watch this. For he is the one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now how could that be that something good was found inside that little child? He's not even old enough to to discern for all the same reasons I've just shared with you. Even though this child is the son of an idolatrous father and an idolatrous family, he never knowingly rebelled against God. He is in the same category of not knowing good from evil, right hand from left hand, innocent as a child. One of the most famous passages is 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had sinned with Bathsheba. You know the story. Bathsheba is pregnant. David kills her previous husband, marries her. It's all a sinful episode. The child is born. The child gets sick. 
For one week, David fasts and he prays, Oh God, save this child. The child dies in a week. As soon as the child is dead, David washes himself and eats food. And his servants go, What's up with you, David? This is strange behavior. David said, Look, I can't do anything now. While he was alive, I could at least pray that God would spare his life. But now it's too late. And this is how David comforted himself. He said, I shall go to the child, but the child cannot return to me. Now, David certainly believed and wrote about heaven on a few different occasions. The way David comforted himself is, well, I guess I'm going to die and go to the grave. His way he comforted himself is, one day I will go to be with my child in God's presence. He can never return here. So Jesus takes the little ones in his arms, lays his hands on them, prays for them, and says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When a baby dies, it goes to heaven. If that child hasn't reached that level of accountability where he has to stand or fall on his own choices to or for, uh, uh, for or against God, I believe that there's special mercy. Not because a baby deserves it, but because God is merciful. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children because children belong to God. He claims them. Now that's where the whole idea of limbo erupted from. I was raised with the idea of limbo. You know where limbo was invented? In the 13th century. That's how how long it took to figure that out. And it was concocted because the Roman Catholic Church said we have a problem. We have a conundrum. What do we do? What do we say about babies who die before we can baptize them? Because they believe in baptismal regeneration. They're not saved unless they're baptized. We can't say they go to hell. They didn't do anything wrong. We can't put them in purgatory because they were never bad enough. So let's create limbo. And they did. Until two years ago, then they sort of threw it out and said, well, it's possible that a baby could go to heaven. It's not possible. It's absolutely certain that when a child dies, that child is in God's presence. Not only that, but look more carefully. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, including children, but also such as these. I think that includes the mentally handicapped. They're at a level they haven't grown beyond infancy yet. And that mental deficiency makes them incapable of faith or of rebellion. Now, I just want you to think of this as we close. If you were to think of all of the miscarriages that we began with giving you the statistic, all of the prenatal, neonatal, perinatal death, If you were then to add to that um, the uh, infant mortality rate that is very high in impoverished nations around the world, think of it this way. It's possible, many theologians believe, that heaven will be more populated with children who went there at death than adults. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's a beautiful thought. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, The number of infants in heaven so greatly exceeds the aggregate of adult believers that, comparatively speaking, the kingdom may be said to consist of little children. And then there's texts like Revelation chapter 7, which pictures people from every nation, every tribe, every people standing before the throne of God. 
Well, we know that there are some tribes and people where there are no on there are no believers. How do you have believers from every conceivable corner? Answer: Their children who die are graciously placed in God's presence. Well, we don't own our children, do we? We don't own them. They're entrusted to us. They're under your care and your training for 18 to 20 years. And these days, 35, 40 years, they stay at home. <laughs> Can't get rid of them. But they're just, they're, you're stewards of them. And God may decide at any time since he gave them or entrusted them to say, I want them. And I'll take care of them. And I'll surround them with my special love and special mercy, much more than you could ever provide. And even Job recognized, after he lost all of his kids, the Lord gives and the Lord what? Takes away. And then he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, in 1861, preached a sermon to his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. And among his words were these that I close with. And he was speaking about likening the death of a child to a fine rose being taken. Suppose you're a gardener employed by another. It's not your garden, but you're called upon to tend it, and you have your wages paid you. You have taken great care with a certain number of roses. You've trained them up, and there they are, blooming in their beauty. You pride yourself upon them. But you come one morning into the garden, and you find that the best rose has been taken away. You are angry, and you go to your fellow servants, and you charge them with having taken the rose. They will declare that they had nothing at all to do with it. And then one says, I saw the master walking here this morning. I think he took it. Is the gardener angry then? No, at once he says, I am happy that my rose should have been so fair as to attract the attention of the master. It is his own. He hath taken it. Let him do what seems good to him. If, God forbid, that should ever happen to you, and I I pray it won't, Pray that your children grow up healthy and happy and wonderful. That's what, we, that's what we long for. That's what we anticipate. But if in God's sovereignty that doesn't happen, know that your child will be forever cared for until you go to him or her. And I would say you can only go to him or her if you go the same way. They went by God's grace. You have to go by God's grace. You have to receive Christ as your Savior to get into the kingdom of heaven. Belongs to such as these. That's the incredible promise. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so merciful that you have found a way, even though we have fallen short of your mark, fallen short of the glory of God, And we fell short of that the very moment we were conceived, David said. We were born in sin. We have a fallen nature that must be dealt with. We're just so grateful and so thankful that by your mercy, 
you place children in that special category where you whisk them off and gather them into heaven and care for them eternally until we can rejoin them by coming the same way of your grace. Lord, I pray for moms and dads, some faces I see, I know they've lost a son or a daughter. They're reliving that pain, even in this message, bring special comfort to these hearts. And then, Lord, use us, use us as implements of your mercy, as tools who would spread your comfort, because we run into people like this, or they're in our family, and we could offer great comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.